0: the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 28th of April with me, Ian Welsh. I've been in Amsterdam this week at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference and I was delighted to speak to some of the participants and coming up are some quickfire insights from the European Commission's Malgrzata Golbievska, Kraft Heinz's Brittany Sage-Brown and Cotton Connect's Alison Ward. And a little later we have a conversation I had recently about agroforestry in the coffee sector with Ben Ashenaki who is Delivery Unit Lead and Rebuild Facility Lead at Regeneration. First though, it's time for some sustainable business news with my colleague B Stevenson.
1: US President Joe Biden has announced plans to increase US funding to curb deforestation in Brazil's Amazon rainforest. During a virtual meeting of the Major Economies Forum on Energy and Climate, Biden revealed an intention to request $500 million over five years to contribute to the Amazon fund. He will need to work with Congress to secure this funding. Biden also announced a US contribution of $1 billion to the Green Climate Fund, which finances projects on clean energy and climate change resilience in developing countries. This doubles the overall US contribution to the fund. At the meeting of countries which account for about 80% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions and global gross domestic product, Biden stressed that they were at a moment of great peril but also great possibilities, and that with the right commitment and follow-through from every nation on the call, the goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees could stay within reach. The European Parliament Committee on Legal Affairs has voted in favour of the EU's proposed due diligence directive, with amendments aimed at better alignment with international standards. The key amendment is the inclusion of banks, insurers and asset managers in the scope of the directive, which requires the corporate sector to identify, assess, tackle and prevent environmental harms and human rights violations across their value chains. Additional amendments include the extension of company scope, variable remuneration for directors, and the recognition of rights of indigenous peoples and local communities. Client Earth have highlighted some pitfalls, however, including the failure to provide a comprehensive definition of what constitutes an adverse environmental impact, and the scrapping of the Convention on Biological Diversity from the list of international treaties which companies must refer to. The amendments will be decided officially in a plenary vote, currently scheduled for the 1st of June. In a push to kickstart a market for green aviation fuels and reduce the sector's hard-to-abate emissions, the EU has also agreed on a new deal to set binding targets for airlines in Europe to step up their use of sustainable fuels. The new proposal aims to increase the demand and supply of these fuels, which equal net-zero to CO2 emissions, or produce lower emissions than petroleum-based fuels. According to the deal, fuel suppliers must ensure that 2% of fuel available at EU airports is sustainable by 2025. In 2030, this will increase to 6%, in 2035 to 20%, and up to 70% in 2050. Sustainable fuel is being presented as a bridge to start gradually reducing air travel's carbon footprint in the short term before zero-emissions aircrafts are expected to come to the fore in around a decade. These will be powered by electric, hydrogen, solar and hybrid solutions that combine these energy sources. A new report by the International Energy Agency has predicted a 35% increase in sales of electric vehicles, or EVs, this year, accounting for almost one-fifth of the total car markets by the end of 2023. The IEA's annual global electric vehicle outlook reveals that 10 million EVs were sold world over last year, with this set to increase to more than 14 million vehicles this year. The lion's share of sales last year occurred in China, which accounted for 60% of global EV sales green policies are having a hand in increasing adoption, with the EU's Fit for 55 package and the US Inflation Reduction Act helping to boost sales by 15% and 55% respectively in 2022. The IEA's executive director has noted the significant implications of trends for global oil demand, highlighting that by 2030, EVs will have eradicated the need for at least 5 million barrels of oil a day.
0: It was great to be in Amsterdam this week at the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference. I managed to catch several of the assembled experts and recorded a number of quick fire interviews that will appear in the podcast over the coming weeks. Coming up now are comments from representatives of the European Commission, Kraft Heinz, and Cotton Connect. I'm joined by Malgorzata Golbieska from the European Commission. We've just been talking about EU regulations. Can you give us an outline of the various EU regulations and policy proposals that are emerging and how they all link together?
2: Thank you. There's a lot happening at the EU level when it comes to regulatory framework. From 2019, we've been working on this, starting with the European Green Deal and the climate neutrality targets for the EU economy and overall moving towards more sustainable circular systems. The Commission is working at the level of eco-design so we uh, put forward proposals for eco-design for sustainable product that will set minimum requirements when it comes to circularity. Uh, But also we are working on the side of the consumer so we are working to empower them with good, credible, verifiable information that they can use uh, when choosing to buy products so that they actually can trust the information they receive and make more sustainable consumption choices.
0: So, what are the specific benefits then, thinking about the apparel sector in particular, expecting to see for companies and for consumers from this policy shift?
2: So, specifically for the sector, for, for the industry, we see a lot of benefit in terms of legal certainty. They will know where to innovate, how to improve their products, production processes, to really drive the sector towards more sustainability. On the other hand, that also gives a level playing field, so competition between companies is there and we want to maintain it, but we also want companies to compete on an equal basis basis so that we can actually achieve our overall objectives. For consumers it's clear, those who want to buy more sustainable products, they will get the information they need to make that choice and they'll be able to trust what they see on the labels. We also want to drive the demand for sustainable products, but that can only happen if the consumers have products that are more sustainable that they can actually choose, that they can buy. So the two should work hand in hand and create synergies within this overall transition towards more sustainability.
0: Well, let's hope that's what happens. We'll see you in the future. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Joining me now is Brittany Sage-Brown, who's Associate Director for Global Procurement, Sustainability and Innovation at Kraft Heinz. Welcome, Brittany.
3: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: So what's the Food & Bev brand doing at an apparel event?
3: So I'm here representing Kraft Heinz as we develop our net zero strategy. When we think about uh, supplier engagement and rolling out programs at scale, so we have 25,000 suppliers, we operate globally, um, though the range of suppliers is from, let's say, very small, small smallhold farmers, all the way to large processors throughout the value chain. Being able to deploy programs at scale is a very challenging initiative and so we want to learn from other industries that are solving the same problems but in different contexts. And so if you look at the challenges of Net Zero for fashion, textile and apparel, really we're talking about the same thing. Uh, we're talking about challenges in data, challenges in, in multi-tier supply chains, um, opacity in the supply chain, but also different levels of maturity when it comes to suppliers. So that's what we were here to learn today and really happy to share our best practice as well. Sure.
0: And of course I mean, both sectors have significant agricultural supply chains, yes. very similar <laughs> challenges. What do you think that the apparel sector can learn from the food and beverage sector then?
3: I think we've maybe taken some slower steps to get into the game. The apparel sector was, I would say, heavily engaged by multi-stakeholder groups over the last. 10 years and, and have that heavy push into the sustainability space. We learn a lot on a daily basis from the due diligence programs in apparel and textile, but we've had a little bit more space to take a step back, understand our supply chain and develop out our decarbonization strategy. And so being able to really set a clear definition of what is the role that FMCG and brands like ourselves play in that space, and then build out a strategy that measures exactly what that definition of success looks like and is very, very pointed towards impact, but also connected it to the business strategy, I think that's a space where we've made a lot of progress and there's some good opportunities to share best practice.
0: Sure, I mean, someone came up to me after the session we were on Mm. and saying, in all the questions today. If you inserted palm oil into, say, cotton, uh, yeah. you know, when you're cotton, you'd, so many of the challenges would be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So, what are you, as a food and beverage executive, what are you taking away from the apparel sector? Then
3: supplier engagement. I, I think that's my big thing. The level of depth at which your industry is engaging suppliers and, and really, I would say, uh, present in the factories, present upstream. You've got that full traceability and, and that transparency element that seems to be moving quite a bit faster than food and beverage. Learning from the cases. on on how did you structure the programs that made that impact? But also, how are you managing, how are you rewarding and incentivizing good behavior? And then, how are you managing some difficult conversations with players that might be lagging, but are necessary to business in the future?
0: Well, we've heard a lot about that today. <laughs> um, and thank you very much for your time, Brittany Sage Brown from Craftines.
3: Great, thank you for your time as well.
0: I'm with Alison Ward, CEO of Cotton Connect. Welcome Alison.
3: Hello, good to be here again.
0: So this is our ninth version Mm -hmm. of this event, and I think you've been at all of them. So how have you seen the conversations changing over the years?
4: So in fact, we were at your first event and we focused on cotton. And I think what's really happened is a real shift to raw materials. So at that time it was very much on detox, Um, really looking at factories and I think now there's a real understanding about where raw materials are coming from in these textile supply chains.
0: Okay, so what are the good things that have been, remained across the years then? What are the things you've been pleased about?
4: Yeah, I think we've seen a real shift in market-based solutions, so we're seeing brands having teams in market where textiles are produced i think there's a real shift away from that kind of european center to bases in india uh, bases elsewhere in the world And i think that's really important great Um, and what about
0: the bad side of things what are the negatives that you're still seeing
4: i think one of our focus areas is the s in esg and i think while we're talking about carbon while we're looking at all of the emissions were. we mustn't forget the people in the supply chain and for us that's really important as we move forward.
0: Well thanks again for your support of the yeah, event thank and uh, you to you. So here's, here's to next year.
4: Brilliant, thank you.
0: A couple of weeks ago I was pleased to speak with Ben Ashinaki, Delivery Unit Lead and Rebuild Facility Lead at Regeneration. We talked about his work in the African coffee sector and in particular the potential beneficial impacts from agroforestry and developing a forest coffee supply chain. Why don't you start by giving us a couple of sentences of background to the work of Regeneration and Partnerships for Forests.
5: Regeneration is a partnership between systemic, a leading-edge climate advisory organisation and Palladium, a global implementer of development programmes. By working with corporates, market access players, donors and investors, Regeneration accelerates the restoration of nature and protection of our planet for future generations by creating a more inclusive and regenerative tropical commodity value chains at scale. Partnership for Forest, which is also implemented by both Systemic and Palladium, works around the tropical forest, incentivizing smallholder farmers, communities, and companies to work source uh, stopping deforestation by using innovative, private sector-led methods.
0: And we're going to talk a little bit today about the coffee sector and the role of agroforestry in long-term sector resilience. What are the challenges facing coffee supply chains?
5: I'll put three main challenges Ian. The first is environmental challenges. Demand for coffee has been going up roughly by about 2% every year. And over the past decades, the supply is really struggling to keep up with the demand. And this is leading to more forested land being cut, and converted into agriculture. In addition, due to climate change, coffee arabica, uh, which accounts for nearly about 70% of the coffee production, uh, the other 30% is a robusta coffee, is taking a hit due to its sensitivity to climate change. As the temperature goes up globally, farmers are forced to move higher up in the altitude to look for cooler weather. This leads to a decline in yield as uh, higher up you go, it's not as very conducive for production and the farmers are not able to produce the necessary type of coffee that they need. One of the negative impacts of this is this might actually lead into losing some specific type of coffees who will actually go extinct. And there's a few studies that have mapped out and showing this to be the fact. Coffee production in Africa accounts for approximately about 10% of the global coffee production. Well, this is produced by approximately 50% of the world's smallholder coffee farmers, highlighting a high dependency on coffee for the region rural dwellers. So there's quite a big impact from, from the livelihoods as well as the environment. The second problem is very much related as farmer income. Smallholder farmers receive the low share of the final price as most of the value is captured in other parts of the value chain. This has led to less incentive for farmers to join the industry leading to older farmers not being replaced by young folks joining and working on the coffee farms. The third is also access to finance. This is an endemic problem throughout the value chain, specifically, again, at the farmer level, leading to low production and less income for the farmers.
0: You guys work in developing an agroforestry approach to help smallholder farmers, smallholder coffee farmers. How can taking an agroforestry approach then help to counter some of these challenges that you just mentioned?
5: Absolutely. Basically, by building the capacity of smallholders on the ground, promoting regenerative practices uh, like agroforestry and landscape-based governance models, the coffee industry can boost product- uh, productivity while addressing deforestation and degradation as well. The benefits of agroforestry are threefold and uh, multifaceted. It boosts on farm productivity. Due to the practice of regenerative practice and planting other revenue-generating trees, we see quite a bit, for example, in in East Africa, around Uganda, intercropping coffee tree with a false banana or avocado. So this gives another revenue stream for the smallholder farmers. In addition, agroforestry helps to restore degraded land and basically around the forest transition areas. This incentivizes the farmers to not encroach into the forest, but rather to practice agroforestry, protecting the smallholder farmer, the, the forest, as well as restored degraded land. Generally, coffee produced through sustainable and regenerative practices fetches a higher price. This is mainly due to current high demand for such product on the international markets as it is able to get certification like rainforest alliance and organic which are almost a proof of approval eh? and for the consumer to actually see that the coffee that they're actually drinking is produced sustainably uh, hopefully using one of the methods which is mostly in agroforestry
0: so it's excellent to see that there is an opportunity for farmers who are improving their techniques who are thinking in terms of long-term sustainability to see at the farm gate a better price
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. If they are able to produce agroforestry or regeneratively grown coffee, the benefits are very quick. You know, usually the, the international market pays that extra incentive for it, especially had rainforest lands and the other certification. But at the same token, they are able to see more productivity out of the land as well as specific cash flow that they use by generating other commodities like, again, like avocado, false banana, plantain, and others. If this can be done at a landscape level, which I think both Partnership for Forests is working on, we are able to see a general increase in farmer prices as well as a demand for it. There is a clear demand for a commodity for a coffee that is produced sustainably, that is able to be traced to the farm gate, that is able to tell the specific story of how and by who it was produced.
0: You mentioned just now forest coffee.
5: What is that? Forest coffee is quite unique. Eh? It's mostly founded in East Africa, a majority of it is in Ethiopia. Forest coffee grows wild in the forest. You know, for coffee is endemic to Ethiopia and it's found like literally wild in the specific forests. We, we, we're defining it as a coffee that has grown naturally in primary forest that has not been disturbed or damaged by human interference. Arabica coffee is native to the forest of Ethiopia, and today, much of Ethiopia's coffee is found in the last remaining old growth forest in the country. These forests are particularly important as they sequester last amount of carbon and harbor rich biodiversity, including the world's greatest single repository of genetically diverse coffee via varieties. The reason this is important, Ian, is as the temperature is rising, We're encountering new type of diseases that are attacking the industry and the farms. And if we are going to find a solution for it, you know, we have to go back to this forest where the genetic biodiversity is found. And the solution can also become out of this forest as well. If we are doing deforestation, if we're actually cutting these forests, we're not just losing the coffee, we're also losing a huge amount of biodiversity. In terms of how it's produced, yeah, absolutely. It can be harvested sustainably. And that is the big work that Partnership for Forests is doing in this area. By supporting what we call the participatory forest management groups. The PFMs are community organizations that develop a legally binding forest management plans with local government to, to manage the forest and other landscapes. The government will give them the right to sustainably harvest the coffee. They've organized themselves into a legal body and they manage themselves. There are specific penalties for, let's say, cutting a tree or for overproduction and for other stuff. And there's also an incentive because these groups are able to aggregate the forest coffee and sell it to the international market and have a direct linkage and traceability to the forest. So it's one of the main projects that we've been developing for the past eight years at P4F and also Rebuild Regeneration also provides the financing to make sure that these groups are incentivized to continue to protect the forest.
0: So the farmers can get a better price for sustainably harvesting forest coffee than they could do from, say, removing trees and planting other coffee plants, other coffee trees.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Three types of production that you can do. The first is like the forest coffee, which is unique to Ethiopia and some part of uh, DRC and Uganda. This is like wild grown coffee, very distinct taste, very unique and can be really appreciated because of how coffee is supposed to be produced and drank, just wild commodity. The second one is is monoculture. So monoculture is having large amount of land and you just kind of planting coffee, no agroforestry. It's a very hard bose on the ground as well as on the climate. And the third is agroforestry. Here the, you are actually taking a combination of both, where you're planting the coffee, you're giving it a bit of a shed, you're giving farmers ability and training to use different type of regenerative agriculture methods. Again, you are also able to capture this in the taste of the coffee as well. Again.
0: What are the specific drivers then that you use to persuade farmers to move from the monoculture approach you mentioned just now towards agroforestry or indeed thinking in terms of sustainably harvesting forest coffee?
5: When working with smallholders, it's important to design a structure with strong incentives eh, for both the forest protection and agroforestry practices. The first and the main one is price. eh? The price has to be enough to incentivize them to stop business as usual and move into regenerative agriculture. When a farmer is moving from business as usual to regenerative agriculture, there's a cost, and there's uh, the cost of time and labor and effort. But when you kind of translate that with a higher price, they're able to see the upside of it. The second is by ensuring there is the proper support to adapt to the practices. This includes capacity building training, and access to finance. They have to be supported, and this is what the project does. We provide them with specific trainings on how to pick the specific coffee tree. We provide them with African beds to process it correctly, and as well as some financing to build some warehouses and so on. The third is link with international markets. At P4F, we've done quite a bit of work on linking the export market with specific farmer or importing companies that are very much interested and uh, incorporate this into to the value chain in their business. Underlying all of this is a strong community engagement to build trust between the smallholders as well as the international coffee companies and local governments as well.
0: You must have some case studies you can share with us.
5: In Uganda and in Kenya. So we're working with uh, two leading coffee companies who trade actually both Arabica and Robusta coffee and works mainly in uh, Western Uganda around the Rinzori mountain. So Regeneration has provided uh, financing to two companies so they can accelerate the transition of the coffee value chain toward a more regenerative agriculture practices. This is done by supporting farmers through training, certification, and an incentive to produce this excellent quality coffee and receive the premium price. In addition to own the farm agroforestry practices, the companies have also set up a landscape governance community. By setting up the landscape governance community, it helps you engage with the community as well as create impact at, at a larger scale, not just at a small plot, but rather at a landscape level to ensure protection of the surrounding forest reserves. Both of these projects are expected to reduce deforestation pressure around uh, Rubuzi and the Bushini districts by engaging coffee producers in the buffer zones uh, to incorporate regenerative practices within their farms. Based on the specific soil types, the farmers will also be mentored on organic fertilizer, for example, that would enhance the productivity and as well as maintain nutrition. And by incorporating regenerative agricultural practices, the intervention aims to restore about 2,500 hectares of degraded land. And this was the land that was completely out of the game previous to that and help protect about 40,000 hectares of natural forest.
0: And that's across the project in Uganda and in Kenya?
5: This one is specifically in Uganda, but also in Kenya, it's the same type of impact numbers as well.
0: Long term then, to what extent do you think that agroforestry, is it the route to protecting coffee supply chains, do you think?
5: The beauty is the industry has really understood this and I think they've accepted it. And we can actually see this by the work that the global coffee platform GCP is doing. They're also strong partners of P4F and we're working on this type of schemes in East Africa. So agroforestry has both the acceptance and the support of the industry, and it has a huge role to play in creating a resilient coffee supply chain. From the impacts of climate change, including weather, variability of prolonged periods of no rain, and soil erosion. Though this is critical intervention that the coffee industry is now beginning to adapt, the intervention needs to go beyond this and inc- incorporate the landscape governance model. It's critical that we move away from small lots type of or uh, uh, to a more landscape governance where we are working on large amount of land around the transition area to ensure the forest adjacent to the smallholder farmers are concerned. This is an approach that we work with in almost all of our interventions because sustainability practices need to go beyond the farm to increase the holistic approach to forest protection and sustainable land use. The momentum is there. I think that the demand that's coming from the consumer The industry is definitely both incentivized, and in some cases, new regulations are coming in to ensure that the companies are adhering to deforestation-free coffee and cocoa, as well as the support of institutions like GCP and P4F and Regeneration, working with the smallholders on the ground to achieve this critical success.
0: Fundamentally, when you have the potential for supply security to be threatened through climate change and through other factors, that's when all the big coffee brands are going to be looking for solutions that will enable them to have supply security. And I guess agroforestry provides the potential for that.
5: Absolutely. Demand is going up by 2% every year. And the demand is not really towards the commodity coffee, but it's a specialty coffee. It's a regeneratively grown coffee. At the same token, we are seeing production going down. Global production is going to be a deficit, I think like for the third time in a year. So for the large coffee companies, it's not a choice. It's not a choice that they engage in agroforestry types of production and forest protection, incentivizing communities and supporting PFM groups and landscape type of approach. It's a necessity. They will need to do this if they want to ensure that their supply is insured. Well, it's all fascinating stuff. Ben
0: Ashinaki from Regeneration, thank you so much for taking us through it. Thank you, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Ahead of next week's Future of Food conference in Amsterdam, my colleague Diana Kim has corralled some relevant interviews and content from the past few months. Very useful if you're attending next week. I will once again be reporting from Amsterdam at the Future of Food event, and do come and say hello if you're there too. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.